I'd like to welcome you to the ministry of McCormick's Creek Church. We certainly hope that you will enjoy this selection. God, you are good. Oh, I can't. Uh, I sought this message for over two and a half months now. And everything that was just prophesied that Brother Hill just said is pretty much in my notes. I can't outdo God. I can't even attempt to outdo God. I'm going to get right into it. If you'll turn with me in the Scripture to Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 28. And we're going to go to 17, 1 through 7. Why don't we just clap our hands as we turn. I know you have your Bibles, but clap something. It doesn't matter. Just give them a little bit of praise. Hallelujah. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him, do, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his own soul? For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then shall reward every man according to his works. Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And then the Scripture goes on and Chapter 17, and after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them unto a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias, taking with him, talking with him. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here, if thou wilt let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Eliza. And while he yet spoke, behold, a, white cloud, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, and be not afraid. Lord, in your will, in your presence, God, I ask you right now, Lord, I pray that you would anoint my lips, God, to speak to your people. The message that you have for this church at this time, God, in this dark hour, God, I pray that you would be a light. God, let your light shine through us, God. Let us be a beacon of hope in this place that is lost, God. Let us deny ourselves, God. Take up our cross and follow you, Lord, into glory, God, I pray. Right now, I pray that you're blessed as you're seated in Jesus' name. Give him a hand clap if you're seated. God's your word. What a time of uncertainty we live in. 
I don't think there's any doubt in our minds what time that is. I'm not going to talk about politics. These guys kept putting it in my mind. I don't even care. I'll be honest with you. Because my hope doesn't rest with Barack Obama. I don't hope in the government. I'm beyond that. I am bought with a price, which means my hope lieth in His coming. So I'm here to talk to you tonight about this subject. Brother Krause, first off, I want to thank Brother and Sister Krause for everything they do. My goodness, music is wonderful. If you ever visit another church, you find out how wonderful and how blessed we are in our music department. So thank them for you guys, Brother Hill, all the ministry, and especially their wives. I want to thank my wife. I know what you all go through. So give them a hand clap and pray. Why not? So I'm going to speak to you tonight about seeking His glory. I'm not going to start out with the highest peak in the world either. I'm going to talk to you about the second highest peak in the world. And when I'm done, you'll understand why. The second highest peak is found in the Karakoram Mountain Range. It's around India and China. It's called K2. Its elevation is 28,250 feet. 785 feet smaller than Mount Everest. It's not the seek, it's not the peak or the size that drives climbers to this location. It's because of how difficult it is. Containing the largest slope and the most rigid terrain, K2 contains constant danger and pressure. They say, every climber says this, it tries your very soul. The altitude and the barometric pressure is a constant strain on the climber. Straining the lungs, brain, and body. Even the central nervous system is at risk due to the elements on K2. Experienced climbers call the conditions a soul effect. The mountain is so deadly, altitude sickness can develop at a moment's notice. Without warning, a climber that ascends too quickly... The simplest change on the body can cause health problems in an instant. Its effect, it, its effects are mostly in their ability to make sound judgment. Death then can come in an instant, and your ability to move and to react to your surroundings can be impaired without notice. Constant danger. The only prevention is to take your time at each level. At each elevation. If a strategic plan is not in place, certain death lingers constantly. The ascension then has to be slow, properly planned. Proper equipment on hand. Still, there is high amounts of danger. The terrain consists of this. Rocks, jagged terrain. Snow, ice, atmospheric pressure, of course, it's a mountain. Equipment failure is one of the highest causes of death. Weather, accidents, avalanches, injuries. injuries. Think about this. You sprain your an ankle on a mountain, it can be life-threatening. Even wind, all a constant enemy, embedded in the back of the climber's mind. Then, yet still, there's a, such a thing called mountain traps. It's a condition which 
snow or some element that's covered land appears to be solid. Yet when the simplest pressure is applied, many people have fallen to their death. Sounds like a lot of fun, doesn't it? Makes me want to climb. <laughs> so where does the ascension begin? Where does our ascension begin? Why did I talk about this? Let's go back to our scripture. Long before we even start to climb with Jesus, Jesus rebuked Peter and laid a foundation of thought in verse 24, if it could come up behind me. It sounds a lot if you compare it to the Nazarite vow, give it in Numbers 6, 1 through 27, and I'll explain. The Nazarite vow, I don't have time to go into it, had four distinct parts. Number one, it contained separation. Number two, you couldn't eat anything of the vine tree. Number three, no razor could come upon your head. And number four, you couldn't approach any dead body. Important to note that this vow, just like that ascension, is by choice. Verse 24 says again, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The fruits of the vine, then, represent in this vow a separation from some joys of this world. Some joys of the harvest. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done. If you're going to walk with God, there's some things you're going to have to sacrifice. You're going to have to give up something. The joys of this world compare nothing to the joys that Christ can and just bless your life with. They're almost unspeakable. The second, the Nazarite couldn't cut his hair, which biblically is shameful for it to a man. If you're going to take up this vow, walk this walk, you're going to taste a humiliation. You're going to taste some shame. Jesus said, if many man should come after me, let him take up his cross daily. My bride has to die. I've got to be willing to be offended and bruised by this cross. Paul speaks of it in Galatians 5.11. I can't just take on some joys. I've got to take on some bear in his name. I've got to take on some pain. All of us are buried in the same name. We shout for joy and triumph in the presence and moving of his spirit and quickly lose it when we associate this was suffering. All of us do it. The third, prohibited to touch a dead body. Separation has to take place. If any man shall come after me, let him follow me. Jesus told the would-be disciple this, follow me and let the dead bury their dead. There is a standard set before our enemy. The world is dying. Stop listening to it. Stop seeking it for advice and wisdom. Jesus sets the stage for a shift. You don't see it. He sets the standard in the disciplined life and moves quickly into what is the real focus of our walk. In verse 26 then, he asks a question. For what is it profit of a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own show? The shift to draw the focus off the current world, the current conditions, 
a place our attention automatically goes to, back on what really matters. The mark of the disciple is not how much he disciplines his mind, but how much he disciplines his spirit. See this little tiny emphasis, this little tiny change happens. And if you read it, you don't even see it. The change is called a paradigm shift. And it happens in the text, and you don't even notice it. It's definition. A paradigm shift is a change of the way you're thinking. It's a transformation. It's biblical account is that it just doesn't happen, but is a teaching method of our God. A couple of examples are this, just so you can follow me. Saul, on his way to Damascus, change in who he was, a change on how he thought, because everything he knew changed that day. And Peter, when he was on the rooftop and told to eat the forbidden food, all of a sudden, a paradigm shift happens. Our paradigm shift from verse 24 to verse 28 is this. It's from a carnal mind to a spiritual mind. There are, there are, however, some important things to remember about both mind frames. The New Testament declares it throughout. You cannot please God or serve Him with a carnal mind. You can't hope to please Him because there is no hope in this world. Your thoughts start to change. Your attitudes start to change. You must be transformed. Sister, do I give you Romans 8, 5 through 9? Can I please read off that? For they are after the flesh. Do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so... Be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any of you have not the Spirit of Christ, He is none of us. It's a change in our thinking. God gave us a marvelous intellect. Came here tonight to teach. I don't know if I'm going to preach. Imputing one limitation from the beginning. Do not use it to learn the details of evil. In Romans 16 and 19. If you act carnally minded, like Peter... In our text, you set to see the glory of God to experience His majesty. Your carnal nature will never realize spiritually what is happening. Peter, when Jesus transcended, didn't really get the idea of what was going on because he was carnally minded. Your comprehension will limit it. And you'll think of earthly needs like building things instead of spiritual things. It had nothing to do with being there. His carnal actions didn't even question why. Two of the greatest men in the Old Testament, talking about the work of the kingdom, talking about Jesus dying on Calvary, and he all of a sudden wants to build a tabernacle to worship the three. His carnal mind, witnessing the glory of God, your carnality will confuse the work for its own glory and its own purpose. Think of himself worthy to even be there. 
Peter wanted to build an altar. Jesus was trying to lead him to focus off of this world and onto the kingdom of God. The paradigm shift that I'm talking about in verse 28. Peter never even realized it was taking place. And another shift. So subtle you won't see it either. I'm going to answer. Throughout the Old Testament, God dealt with man in dis- through dispensations of time. In each period of time, there was grace, then judgment. Creation, then, then through sin, man's actions, God judged the sin. He called Noah, grace. Flooded the world, judgment. Called Abraham, judged Sodom and Gomorrah. Called out Moses and Israel, judged Egypt. Gives the law, grace. Sends judges to judge Israel for their sins, obvious judgment. Gave His Spirit to dwell with Israel in that, in that temple, in that tabernacle. Grace. Removed it due to their sin. Judgment. Important to note the Spirit of God had left the temple before it was destroyed. And the Bible doesn't ever say it dwelt back in that temple that was recreated. Now we have a shift. And not only the way God is relating to man, but a shift in the forerunner. John the Baptist shows up preaching repentance. There's a shift off of judge or grace and judgment from judgment to grace. You don't see it. So judgment comes calling all men, all men to repent. And grace is thereby extended its hand in a new covenant. Still the carnal mind can't comprehend it. The fullness of Jesus' character represented in these two men. You've got Moses standing there representing God's grace. And you've got Elijah standing there representing judgment. And Luke, it was declared that John the Baptist had a spirit of Elijah. Elijah, who was he? He was the only prophet that could call down fire from heaven in instant judgment. God's fullness of character represented in that mountain. And the carnal mind has the inability to perceive grace as being extended to it. Jesus' glory shown to man. And what was their reaction? They were half asleep. See, being spiritually minded means we can have a deeper thought of the things of God. We can have not to worry. We have the right to not worry because we have a God that loves us enough. I don't care what's happening in Washington, D.C. I care about what's happening in the kingdom of God. See, there's a call on this church. I felt it as I was putting this together. There's a... We've all heard it. There's supposed to be revival here. But for revival to take place in this place, in, in this church, some flesh is going to have to die. And as you become 
a little bit more spiritually minded, all of a sudden, one of the things that comes with being spiritually minded is being able to discern the hidden motives of man. To be intelligent is to judge truth by your mind, but to be spiritually minded is to judge truth by the combination of the Holy Ghost and a harmonization in the Scripture. The greatest challenge of our day, then, is to grasp the concept of being mighty in spirit, walking in the Spirit of God, and discerning the difference between directed by our intellect. We must integrate the character of Christ into every area of our learning. In our day, we have an unknowingly accepted a standard of education, which hinders and destroys the, the potential of learning spiritual things. Hindering that work of grace and judgment. It emphasizes intellect. We in the church focus then on the most clever and the, and the statements of faith. We all do it. The tragedy of this is a person new in church or here for a few years might look the part and sound the part, but to be totally totally unscriptural in his or her spirit. See, there's a growing period up that mountain. We go back to our scripture, all of a sudden, God does this parallel shift, and then we walk up to the base of a mountain, and he said, let's start climbing. What is it then? We go from a carnal way of thinking to a spiritual mind of thinking, and God points us up the mountain and says, let's start climbing happens in Scripture, and it happens in our lives. In chapter 17, verse 1, Jesus takes Peter, James, John up that mountain. Now, there are two likely mountains this account speaks of. No one knows for sure, of course. Given Jesus' journey and biblical marking, it's likely to be Mount Tabor or Mount Hermon. Now, we read over that like it's not a big deal. But let me, let me explain something about these mountains. Mount Tabor is 1,930 feet from its base. I don't know about you, but I haven't climbed 1,930 feet in a long time. And Mount Hermon? I don't know if I ever have, no. Mount Hermon is 7,336 feet from its base. How many of you feel like saying, God, where's the ski lift? I'll take that up. The point is, it wasn't a simple climb. It was a dangerous climb. <laughs> so I'm going to ask you the question. This is Bible study. Do you have enough faith to trust your God to get up that mountain? Faith. Think about faith. It's easy to say, oh, brother, you're going through a hard time? Well, just have faith. You'll be all right. See, faith, faith is one level you climb to. Without it, you can't even start up the mountain. See, the parallel shift went from a carnal mind to a spiritual mind. God was, was dealing with the Nazarite. That's the, that's the law. That's, that's the basis. But now, in the New Testament, you and I get again to walk in that wonderful Spirit of God. So things aren't just terrestrial anymore. They're celestial. It's different. It's deeper. We can understand God. 
We can start to understand things about who God is and what He is. We go beyond just what we can see to faith. Faith. What is faith? Everybody knows it. Come on, just say it. Sister, where are you at? Just holler it out. There you go. Things hoped for, but not seen. But faith, faith alone, it'll get you to pray. Faith, yeah, I'll pray, I'll pray, I'll pray for you. Simple to say. But will it sustain you when the answer doesn't come? You pray for healing and it doesn't come. Will faith keep you there? Even if it's strong enough, can you look in the eyes of someone with cancer and declare faith? Now, you may think, well, that's that's, that's, that's harsh, Brother Goldsmith. Why, Why are you talking about that? Well, let me tell you something. As somebody with the Holy Ghost in this world, you are a beacon of light. If your faith can't sustain you to look in that person, to look in their eyes, is it enough? Is it enough to get you to heaven? Faith. Faith will get you into the lion's den. But I'll give you something. It ain't going to get you out. Trust is going to get you out. So then a deeper plane then is you go from faith to trust. Not only will faith gets you into the valley of the shadow of death. But walking there, only trust is going to get you out. So you start climbing levels. You start walking with God. So what's the point? Why do we as Christians go through pain? To discipline our lives? Is it faith? Is it trust? And then we start to think, as I'm climbing up this mountain, I'm not there yet. I've died to myself. I've died to this flesh. And yet I've got more pain to go through. And then I declare, no. You still have a mountain to climb. You still have some things to find out, some places to go, some praying and some seeking to get to. Yet here in America... We run from pain. We're the biggest pill poppers there are. And you mean to tell me as a Christian today, I have to go through pain? To the apostles, pain was an everyday part of life. There's a, there's a study. This is outside of my notes. There's a study done on pain. $16 billion of our taxpayers' dollars. $16 billion. I kid you not. To study pain. And you know what their first thing was? There's that. The first statement they made, and this is, this is a man doing the study. Um, I'm not going to get into politics, but he had all his buddies come in. They had a huge... I don't know, meeting about it is the best word I can come up with. And this little bitty man walks in, in the back. There's about 40 or 50. You've got engineers. You've got scientists, top of their line. 
they're going to figure out pain, God's greatest mistake. That's, that's the whole identity of this conference. So this little bitty man walks in in the back. And, um, you know, they're going through everybody. So you're on board, you're on board. Okay, engineers, what we're going to do is we're going to build this elaborate robot, if you will. And it, it's going to help us break down what pain is, why we sense pain, why we go through pain, how the body reacts to pain, how that if, if you're playing tennis, how that the body doesn't react the same as if it's in danger. Does that make sense? So you're running around and you're hitting this ball and your body's in all this, you know, friction, if you will, and they're going to figure out why the body reacts differently to that to when it's in danger. They're going to find out how God messed up because He gave man pain. This little bitty man walks in. And he sits down and he hears both of it. And he said, he walked up and he shook the guy's hand and he said, well, let me tell you something. I'll be back when God prompts me to come back and I'll tell you why you're going to be wrong. And he leaves. $16 billion, five years later, he just happens to be preaching a conference in New York. And he walks in to where that conference was. The building was located where they're operating right next door. And he walks in and he goes, hmm, there's nobody here. So he goes next door. He's looking around and he notices that they're packing up shop. They're done. They can't figure out why pain reacts the way it does. They can't figure out why the body needs pain. And as he walks in the back door... He looks at the at the head scientist and he says, "You know, I remember you. Um, didn't you say something about you'd be back?" And he said, "Yeah, yeah, I just preached a conference, and you know, to be honest with you, I totally forgot about your your whole count. I totally forgot about everything you were doing. I forgot about what you were doing." He said, "And I just happened to be driving dot, dot by, and God spoke to me and told me to stop by." And he said, well, sir, he said, you know, we're willing to listen to you now. Um, what is the point in God giving pain to man? He said, I'll sum it up. It's easy. I, uh, I have a, an operation or, or a clinic in South Africa, and it studies leprosy and it what it does to the body. And the one thing we've noticed is is that leprosy kills all of everything in a body. It, it's like it's like a plague, but it comes in and it wipes out all its ability to fill anything. And he said, one of the things I've noticed is that people without leprosy slowly start to die the most painful death they've ever given. Case in point, there was a man who played music for his church. And slowly, uh, because the pain, his body didn't indicate that it was in pain. When he looked at the sun, he went blind. Because there was no longer a response from the body to indicate that he needed to blink. And so, as this went along, his body no longer recognized the fact that his hearing needed to turn off or, or it needed to respond See, I guess the, the eardrum in itself, it will ring. Well, guess what? When that ringing's not there, 
your eardrum will just constantly hear noise. So he was half deaf in his left ear, and he's real protective of his right. His feet slowly started to lose their ability to feel something. And as he walked around, he walked so hard and so heavy that he had rubbed his toes off. And they were numb, obviously. But they were just little nubs, is what I meant to say, on his feet. So he lost feeling also in his hands. And as he played that guitar for his church, he got in such a rhythm of the Holy Ghost that he had worn all of his fingers down except for one single finger. And slowly his body is dying. And he is of that one little nub that he plays notes with. So protective of God's one last gift that he has in his life. What does pain do for you? Pain is sent there to protect you, my friend. Pain is sent there to keep you from some dangers. We want to complain about how much pain we have as Christians. But the fact of the matter is, all these simple standards, oh, I can't smoke, oh, I can't drink, they're actually there for your protection. Think about this. Think about what God came here to do. This isn't in my notes. God came here to have a relationship with mankind. Easy, right? But appropriation says this. He had to have a way... Appropriation means this. He had to have a way to have a relationship with you, Keith. Not. But he wanted a relationship so he wouldn't lose his... Sovereign right, or, or his, what's the word I'm looking for? Lord, help me. He wouldn't lose his principles. He wouldn't lose his holiness to have a relationship with you. So he was constantly seeking a way to have that relationship with you and I again. That's what appropriation means. So as we stand here today, God's looking for a way to have a relationship with man. If he took away pain, if he took away judgment of sin, then what would happen? Our reaction to sin, then God would instantly judge. If he instantly judged our reaction, then what would happen to our reaction? We would become like robots. I can't do that. Better stay in line. I can't do that. Better get back here. I can't do that. But would that satisfy his need? To have a relationship with you? Or would that make our relationship with God be based upon a reaction? That's what it would be. So why is there pain in this world? Why is there suffering? Because God is looking for some people that are going to go through a little bit of pain just to have a relationship with Him. God is looking for some people that even though it hurts, I'm going to serve Him. Even though i got to climb a mountain, I'm going to keep serving Him. Even though I go through pain and suffering and torment in this world, you can't take my God from me. I'm willing to die. I'm willing to slay myself on a cross so that I can have a relationship with some people and that they can choose to serve me 
out of a love for who I am. So why is there pain in our walk with God? Why is there a little bit of suffering in our walk with God? Why do we go through an allegorical hell to walk with God? I'll sum it up as I close. Pain constantly killing us. Constantly pushing us back down that mountain. Level after level. Your body aches. Your mind trembles. You want to die. Times of loneliness. Despair. Near death. Unable to find God. Like Job. Searching through his infirmities. Searching. On my left hand, where is God? On my right hand, He's not there. He's not in the cloud. He's nowhere. What am I going to do? Why do I serve God? With a relentless enemy, constantly plaguing me, constantly coming after my soul. Broken and bruised, looking for a Savior, scared like Peter, James, and John. Yet to me and you, we never feel that hand like they did, saying, Don't be afraid. So when asked, When asked why he climbs this mountain, Dr. I'm not going to get this name right. York's Coma. Anyway. Um, why he asked, he climbs Mount K2. Okay? 17 times leading expeditions in. 17 times. They asked him, Why do you do it? Why do you keep climbing that mountain? His answer, what I get from this adventure, and then he pauses. And I said, yeah, take your time. Take your time. Figure it out. No, I, I, I know the answer, he says. But I've got to think of a way to explain it to you. And he says, what I get from my adventure it's not just sheer joy. Well, isn't that the end of life? So when I climb my mountain, why do I do it? Why do I keep climbing? Why do we stay in church? Because it's absolutely sheer joy. To serve my master. It's joy unspeakable. You can't pay me to do it. I would go through pain after pain after pain to see his glory. You can't buy me off. You can't give me anything to spend two seconds of time with my Savior. Because there's something that happens as you keep serving God and you keep climbing those levels. The pain that keeps hurting you. All of a sudden, like Brother Hill said at the beginning of this service, right over here with the men, 
We've got to stop letting our day-to-day infect us. Because the joy of serving our Master, my Savior, that joy of spending five minutes with Him in prayer outweighs anything this earth or this life can give me. When He shows up like He did before this service and He speaks to His people, a God, God. Now back in the day, they're half fish, half man God. He couldn't do that. He couldn't show you the love that our God shows us, keeping us from danger constantly on the other side of the battlefield, winning our battles for us. It's what He did on the cross. It's absolute, sheer joy and unspeakable. If you'll stand with me. And if the music will please come, and it's already here. I want us to think about this as I sing whatever song they're going to sing. How much joy are you lacking in your walk with God? And when's the last time you sought His glory? His glory. God, you can't. You can't imitate. You can't fake God's glory. Hallelujah, Jesus. That glory. I pray this for this service. There's a man. It's going to be a real quick story. Anyway. There's a woman that came in his office and she looked at him and she said, do you know who I am? And he looked at her and he said, no, but I think I know who sent you. And she said, well, I'm here to torment your life. I'm here to turn your lights on and turn them off because I serve the great and power bells above. And he looked at her and he said, hmm. You'll do no such thing. And I tell you what, you won't even speak until you leave my office. And she left, and as she got out in the parking lot, she started screaming. And he said, I want you to know something. Everything that you send to me, I'm going to send sevenfold back to you. And a week went by, and she came back into the office Scared to death. Beaten up. She looked like she had been drugged through a mud hole and beat with an ugly stick. And he said, How are you feeling? Odd question. And she said, I have absolutely no joy. And he said, I serve a master that can give you that. And he didn't ask for anything. He didn't speak some prophetic words. He didn't do anything, but he simply said this. God, let your glory rest in this place. Ooh. God's glory entered that room and you know what happened? He didn't speak a bunch of words. He didn't yell. He didn't scream. But she started instantly letting go of those spirits. And they tore through her clothing. Coming out. One after one. And then God's glory ascended down upon her and she started speaking with other tongues. Now I'm here to ask you if God will show up to a half-dead witch, 
How much more will He show up with His glory to a room filled of people seeking it? So I want us to do this one last time. Let's seek God's glory before we go back to work tomorrow. Let's seek God's glory together in one mind, in one accord, one last time. God, show up with your glory tonight. Hallelujah.